Dotnet Rocks episode 894 with guest Fabio Matsui. Recorded live Thursday, July 25th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now... Here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Howdy, sir. Hey, what's up? Oh, you know, plunking along, battling weird technical problems. You know, I'm still running my data center in the house. I actually put new servers in. Really? Uh, it was time. I, I sort of did the math, talked over with the wife, and we came to conclusion, ah, we're good for another five years. So, I new pair of servers, but I found out an interesting problem. All my computers were perfectly in sync with their time, but they were 12 minutes fast. Isn't that funny? Isn't that great, huh? They're, every machine all synced. And it's part of the Active Directory effect. And the issue was all of my Active Directory servers, the managed servers, are VMs inside of these hosted machines. And the hosting machines weren't syncing time correctly and would force it down on this time synchronization machine. Isn't that funny? So you got to fix the right thing, and all of a sudden it works. But it, everything that, is easy when you have the right answers. Summarized about three days of ripping my hair out into fifteen <laughs> seconds. You know. <laughs> well, let's get started with Better Know Framework. Awesome. So what do you got, dudes? I am going to do something I've never done before on .NET Rocks. Uh oh. Better Know Framework has nothing to do with the framework. Oh. I've never done that before. Actually, I have. I do it all the time. <laughs> um, but this is really out of uh, off the wall. But I thought I would share it with my listeners because I think that it's important and a lot of people need to know. Okay. So it's basically a recipe for low-carb chocolate ice cream. Oh, I see. Yes. Ice cream is such an important part of my life. <laughs> I, think, I think you have a song involving ice cream at some point. Isn't it? I guess you'd say <laughs> what can make me feel this way. Ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. Never mind. <laughs> um, well, you know, so sugar is nasty and ice cream is great. So how do you reconcile the two? I basically came up with an amazing recipe adapted from Alton Brown's, you know, premium ice cream recipe that uses a product called Slim Tevia. And I, it's not, you know, I, I'm not an endorsement. They're not paying me. I just found a product that tastes just like sugar that has no uh, of the sugar sugar's effects of raising your insulin levels and all that stuff. It's very hard to find an artificial sweetener that doesn't have an aftertaste. And, and let's face it, Stevia was the last thing on my list. But apparently, if you go to slimtevia.com, they have figured out a way to combine it with fructose and still uh, and still be low glycemic and low carb. And you have to buy three pounds at a time. So for forty seven bucks, it's about fifteen uh, bucks a pound. But you use a third of the amount that you would sugar. So it's more like buying sugar at five bucks a pound and then getting the benefit. But anyway, if you go to tinyurl.com/slash low carb ice cream. 
this is a blog post where I basically lay it out. And it's mostly half and half. There's a heavy cream. It makes over a gallon of ice cream. You need an ice cream maker, of course. A whole can of cocoa powder and about uh, one and two-thirds of uh, cups of this Slim Tevia stuff. And it's awesome. And all my kids couldn't believe it that it was low, that it was sugar-free. Nice. You cannot tell the difference between this stuff and sugar. It's just amazing. So there you go. I know that, uh, you know, the people are some, – some people with diabetes and some people who are pre-diabetic. And let's face it, sugar is just nasty. So if you're, if you're looking for a way to uh, enjoy your ice cream, there you have it. Or anything else, sugary. Richard, who's talking to us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 874, and that's the one we did with Michelle Bustamante talking about startups. And this comment comes from Andre, who says, uh, wow, I love this show. I'm a financial developer in his 40s, working for a pr- trading company, and I was involved in two different startups in my 20s and know it from the inside. There were some great things and some not so great things. I really felt the life and the wisdom and experience emanating from the show was awesome. Mm. Enthusiasm tempered with the hard one experience, and there's nothing better. Yeah. For those thinking of creating a startup, I would like to pass on a bit of wisdom given to me by a venture capitalist. He said, I personally would not start a business unless I had customers waiting for that product or service. The more, the better. If I didn't already have any, I'd go and try and sell some PowerPoint wear to see if there really was any interest. Hmm. Even sign a tentative agreement or two if I had a business entity. For most startups, the first time they meet with the customers that will ultimately pay the bills happens far too late in the process. Go and meet your potential customers before you ever meet with your potential investors. Yeah. And finally, he said, spend way more time on marketing and sales than technology in the beginning. Your tech can be much more easily changed to match customer expectations when it is in the early stages of development. Your customers' expectations are not so malleable. Yeah, that's true. And this brings to mind uh, a book called uh, Lean Startup by Eric Ries, mm-hmm. which it very much teaches this mentality of really cultivating the customer and doing that feedback cycle very rapidly. Good metrics to see how the customers behave in the very, very early stages of almost no product at all so that you actually start building things that people want. And I'd recommend it to your reading. I'll include a link. Did Michelle bring that up in her show? I don't think she brought up Lean Startup. I, I might have. Yeah, but uh, uh, Andre's points are are very well taken. That uh, you know, we t- I think one of the things we did talk about is how we tend to focus on the tech stuff because that's what we know, right? And we all have this engineering disease of build it and they will come, which is simply not true. You we really do have to sell stuff, and it takes effort and time. And uh, funny how when the customer, if you already build it, you tend to want to sell that, and this may not be what the customer wants. Right? Yeah. So, Andre, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, WinPhone 7 and 8, Android, and iOS. And those great apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd like to build you a mobile app? You can go to DiatomEnterprises.com. Absolutely. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by industry experts, releasing about 40 new courses every month and offering a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much everything Microsoft. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. 
And with that, let me introduce our guest today. Fabio Matsui is the Chief Technology Officer at Wirestone, an integrated agency at the intersection of evolving technology and human behavior. He's been developing software long enough that he can confidently say he's written apps in dead languages. Fabio has developed embedded system kernels, device drivers, industrial process control systems, computer telephony systems, enterprise web apps, and interactive touch experiences. Throughout his career, he is always involved in deep technical activities, from hacking punched card machines to developing Microsoft Connect apps. Fabio leads the Wirestone Labs initiative, where the team plays with the latest ideas, concepts, and technologies. Fabio, welcome to the show, and I can't think of a more fun job than, you know, being at, in the lab, in the R&D lab. That sounds oh, great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for, 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 for being the show. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's great to be able to play with the latest and greatest, you know. It all, it doesn't, you know, it's always exciting. It's never boring. Yeah, and uh, I, I guess, you know, some days are better than others, but I, can you remember the, the, your, your most enlightening day at work that was just like, oh, you know, where your mind was blown the widest or something? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, um, I think one of the things that was kind of very interesting for me was, uh, playing with the, the connect. I think it, it kind of opened up a, a, a whole new horizon of how people can interact, yeah. uh, with computers. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and, um, and I think all other things that are very exciting is when we see some of the, the, the young kids, they're working with the, they're experiencing the, the systems that we develop and they're like, oh my God, it's, it makes it so easy for them. Right. You know, they, they get it right away. Yeah. So let's talk about working with creative types because that's what our topic is, working with creatives. And uh, some of us are more creative than others, but uh, indefinitely as developers, we have to encounter them and work with them. Are, are we really so different? You know, you hear so many people say that, you know, Music, music, and programming are very related. Are we really so different? You know what is interesting is that uh, one of the things that I have learned is that everybody is a little bit different. So it's, it's really hard to put people in, in kind of in, in boxes, in black and white boxes. You know, and actually, it's kind of one of the things I, I like to say is that uh, you know there are fifty shades of gray in all of us. You know. <laughs> So basically, I think it's oftentimes the way we approach a complex interactive application is by looking at the team structure. Who do you have? Mm-hmm. You know, what what are the team members? And everybody will play a role, and everybody will gravitate towards a certain you know strength or expertise. Yeah. Okay. What is uh? I mean, obviously, design has played a more and more important role in software. Um, are today's software shops design first, do you think? Yeah, you know, I think it depends a little bit on the the culture of that organization. I think uh, there are some organizations that are more engineering focused, and you kind of see that surface through their products and other organizations are more uh, focused on, on the user experience and the creative. It's almost like, you know, Apple is, is almost like a good example of, a, of an organization that is very much focused around the user experience. Mm. So are we really talking about software design here, UX design? Does it matter? Is it all the same? 
You know, actually, I think maybe one interesting way we can talk about, uh, you know, the how you execute on on those highly creative and interactive projects by talking about the team structure. And I think it, it will kind of go back to that question that Carl said, you know, are we that different? You know, and I think as we talk about the different uh, players in the project, I think that's going to come out, you know. So, for example, right, I mean, maybe given the, the audience that we have here, maybe we can start with the, the software engineer, particularly on the back end, because I think most guys will probably relate to that. Sure. So, the, the software engineer on the, on the back end, what is that person thinking? He's primarily on scalability, maintainability. They're thinking in, in terms of, you know, IOC containers, you know, inversion of control or independence injection, uh, object relational mapping and so forth. So mm-hmm. that guy has a, has a, a focus on uh, creating, uh, there's beauty in minimalism and resilience, a small piece of code that works, uh, that works well. Yeah. Then you have the other uh, member, which is the software engineer on the front end. So it's an interesting uh, thing because what happens is that even though we're talking about front end, uh, meaning could be a, a tablet application or a website uh, running on the browser, mm-hmm. it, it, it really involves a lot of complex software engineering type of things. There is uh, IOC, you, you know, we talk about um, model, view, view model, right. data binding and so forth, right? But, uh, and then you have also the all the event based stuff that is just you know coming in at uh, mouse move clicks and they are very sure. event based and on top of that nowadays there's an expectation for real time animations so there is a role that is a software engineer on the front end right and and it's pretty hard because one of the things that this guy or this guy or this person needs to deal with is the user because the user does unexpected things right yeah. We don't want to say the user does stupid things. So it's just that, you know, they do things that you don't predict. Right, sure. And that guy, that guy is also thinking in terms of minimalism and, and resilience. So, and then that's when it gets interesting. The next type of role that we have seen is the front-end developer. And that's very interesting because typically that front-end developer is playing with the same technologies that the software engineer on the front end is also playing, be it XAML, yeah. HTML, CSS, or JavaScript. Yeah. But that person has a particular interest on animation, interaction, and visual effects, you know. So the class of folks that live in that world, they a lot of them used to be flash designers. You know, but their right. deliverable is still is in text, right? They 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 are doing uh, markup, JavaScript, uh, CSS, or or XAML, right? And I think that's where some of that the 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 question that you're you're saying, right? You know, are we that divided? Are we that different? Well, you right. know, back to that Fifty Shades of Grey, right? We have different different interests and different focus. Now, the next uh, uh, kind of role that you see a lot is the visual designer, okay? And that's the guy that has a, a more of an artistic, uh, you know, bent. Mm-hmm. That's the person that uh, probably, you know, went to art school, 
Right. He's thinking about all those, you know, texture balance, you know, color schemes and that kind of thing. But, you know, here's the, the what I think is kind of a, kind of a, a tricky thing. Um, you can be a developer and a designer, right? I mean, I don't think there's anything that, that prevents you from, from being both. Yeah. But what is the definition of a great designer, right? So what is the difference between a good design and a great design? And, and it's hard to define, right? It, yeah. It's just like the Supreme Court justice once said. It's like trying to define porn, you know? I know it when I see it. Yeah, so, and then add Fifty Shades of Grey in there, and you, you know. Then I have a complete of picture, porn. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we need to get back and make this into more of a family, right? Yeah, uh, show. well, that's all right. <laughs> so, anyway, so, and I think that's where I think is the difference, mm. right? And, uh, and I remember. Let me ask you this. Do, do you think that a a good designer is a good designer is a good designer, whether they're designing software or or not. Like, would you feel good hiring a, an industrial designer? You know, that's their job. If they if they maybe haven't designed software before. Yeah. So basically, yeah, I think there there's a difference between you know a a, a visual designer and a software designer. Okay. Right? I think there's there's a different kind of a mindset. There's beauty on both areas right mm -hmm. creating something that is that is very elegant the the terms apply right software architecture elegance and all of that but there is a, a little bit of a, a skill difference i mean it's almost like a, a different focus if you will i mean it's, it's mm -hmm. really hard to describe it i guess it's going back to that to what uh, you know uh, you know defining define porn again right it's like it, it, it's really, I think it's really complicated yeah. to, to make the separation. I think they were talking about obscenity as, you know, as opposed to porn. You know, what is obscenity? I don't know, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, exactly. But uh, do you think, like, would you feel, you know, good taking software that your software designer has, you know, giving your software, like handing a tablet to an industrial designer who doesn't know anything about software and saying, is this designed well? You know, would they be able to tell you yes or no? If the software is designed well, yeah. you know, I don't know if they could really tell that. I think it's, I think a lot of that uh, surfaces once the uh, the you're using the application, mm -hmm. and then you you're you're seeing that there are fragile points in in that application. All right. Well, you know? we were talking. You were talking about the team structure, the user interface designer, and then the visual designer, and then who else is on the team? Yeah, so basically, I think the, the, the other element, the other key player that I think it, it's really the guy that makes, uh, the portion that makes a big difference is the UX designer, you know? Mm -hmm. So what, what happens is, um, you know, the, the, the UX designer, uh, typically delivers things in terms of, uh, wireframes and storyboards. Right. It is very common for the UX designer to understand the platform that is being targeted. So it could be, uh, you know, uh, Windows 8, uh, then the person understands the, the, the previously known Metro style. Right. You know, how, uh, what are the paradigms, a pivot or whatever you want to call it. Or you have the iOS platform. So that person understands the basic paradigms 
you know, on how that platform works. Sure. The, so it has the UX designer has a good sensibility towards the user needs, right? And is very is visual aware. At the same time, is very analytical. Mm. So can distill the business needs into into user experiences, and that person becomes a really important glue between the visual designer and the technical the technical person. I get it. So y- your visual designer is visual. Your UX designer is sort of playing that bridge role, that that sort of go between between the developers and the visual designer. Exactly. So yeah. what happens when you don't have the UX designer in the middle, and then you have a more classical visual designer mm. and a more classical, let's say, just a software engineer. So let's say you have a scenario where, for whatever reason, in your team, you're lacking that uh, UX designer and you're lacking the front end developer that's when a lot of things can start breaking down right because uh, when a a visual designer uh, doesn't think in terms of uh, you know dynamic content so you have uh, this piece of copy is going to change so things are going to grow right right Uh, or what there's a lot of the what i call the what if scenarios right what if we're developing a responsive site and now we have a, a much narrow window? What happens there? Uh, what if the for some reason in the database there's a much longer text? Right? So right. Uh, so those are the things that start kind of breaking down when you don't have the front-end developer and the UX portion in the middle. Sure. And there are ways there are ways you can kind of uh, compensate for that, you know. So probably, well, definitely in all cases have a lot of uh, involvement. So people need to collaborate and talk, and, uh, and and talk up front. You know, don't don't do the design and then hand it off to the developer. Yeah. You gotta have to have that collaboration, and um, and typically that uh, the 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 soft if you have if you don't have a front end developer and you have more of a software engineer mm. then that person really doesn't like to play with photoshop yeah and uh, so that's another thing that is kind of interesting because uh, a lot of times people end up doing what is called red lines yeah. and red lines is you have that uh, that comp or that picture the visual representation of the screen and then a designer will put like a, this is uh, this many pixels. This is the uh, this is the font that we're gonna use, and this right. is the size of the font. Hmm. And this is the RGB value for that the text. Got this it. is the RGB value for this. But so it's a the, sort of a, a whiteboard way that we can see what we need to do. Exactly. Yeah. I, exactly. What, if you're hiring a UX designer, what? Should, what kind of questions should you ask in that interview? I mean, what what is the key to finding the right person? Yeah. Okay, so now I need a moment to add anything there, right? So, yeah. So, yeah, let me think about this. Because I really haven't hired a lot of UX designers, right? This well, what's an aspect of a user interface designer that is desirable to you as a developer? Mm-hmm. So I think the the if if I were to hire a a, a UX um, uh, a UX designer, I think that the person needs to uh, understand uh, user behavior, 
right? Because I think there's sometimes a tendency for visual design to be more focused around visual. And, uh, and then uh, the UX uh, designer will think more in terms of interaction, how people think. They, they really understand the business problem. What is the message? What, what are you right. trying to convey? Right? right, and how people will look at this thing. So, does the user interface designer also have to be an expert in the vertical of the software that you're writing? I think what happens it, it helps a lot if that person has a background on that particular technology. Right? Well, so maybe it's not a technology. It, maybe it's a market. You know, like it, right. let's say it's for uh, insurance claims or something like that. Would you expect the UX designer to to know what you know, to, to, to know that field so that they understand what the end user would want and expect out of software? Yeah. So what happens a lot, uh, you know, the, the work that, that we do is we have a group that is more focused around the strategy, right? So they're folks that analyze the business, they do research, and then they come up with the overall strategy around mm-hmm. it. That information that is passed to the UX, uh, you know, uh, designer that will say, okay, so what are we trying to do here? What is the message we're trying to do? Who, who is the audience? So what are the kind of the, 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 the information architecture, the, the, how do you believe people will interact with this? So I see then the UX designer, not only as the go between, between the developer and the visual designer, but also the the stakeholder, you know, the the end customer, they, they sort of, are the uh, the universal translator, it sounds like. Yes, it plays a really important glue role, not only between, like you're saying, visual and the technical, but then there's also the, uh, the some people have business analysts, right? Yeah. So be the strategy business analyst and, and designing the user experience. And also be very empathetic to, uh, to the user. Sure, right? sure. I just think, you know, I, I appreciate that the UX designer would have to have some knowledge of the technology being used just to know how you can create flows. You know, it's fairly tough to do certain animation tricks that WPF just takes for granted to help show people which way things are moving in, say, WinForms or even in JavaScript. It's not that easy to create that same sort of dynamic field. WPF does it very easily. XAML's good at that. Right, exactly. And, and, and they are, and they are, User interface paradigms, there are differences in user interface paradigms between uh, a website or or a a tablet application or a mobile phone. And even between different platforms, there are different UX paradigms. And the best UX uh, designers understand the difference in paradigms. Yeah, and I think it's important to be aware of that and sort of get into what's the paradigm we're going to use and make sure that it all works right. I would always call them design. Would you call them design patterns? Mm. User interface defined patterns? Yeah, yeah, design patterns or paradigms, I I would say. Interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah, they're more workflows, too. I mean, I can imagine a UX workflow. But let me spin this another way, which is that, you know, I think that you're talking about some fairly rare resources so far. There's not, I have not found a lot of good UX designers. I think the visual designers are a little bit easier to find, but how many applications are we seeing today where people are expected to build a tablet app and don't have these resources at all? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's why I believe those uh, those guys are very important. They're very valuable, you know. And and I believe that's 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 something that is kind of new in a way, you know, because of all the new form factors and new technologies out there. There's things can be so much more visual and interactive. Mm-hmm. And this is really an emerging uh, uh, area, an emerging role. And, you know what really happens going back to those Fifty Shades of Grey, right? I mean, there there are visual designers that have that UX uh, intuition in them, right? You know? And, and, and that's what gets very confusing, uh, you know, in the past because we would say, oh, we need a, a designer that will create this application. Oh, let's get such and such. And you were successful. Well, probably that person had both the visual design skill as well as the UX portion of it, right? And some folks are more, gravitate more towards just the, the visual. And another thing that is very interesting is that sometimes you have the the front end developer that has really good skills on the UX side of it. Right. So you pair up the visual designer that is more focused on the visual, and then a coll- that collaborates with the front end developer. And I think the, the 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 trick is to know where people's skills are in the whole team understand the gaps and then adapt your processes or the way you, you work to compensate for those gaps. Well, I can also think that um, we just did a time when there's a lot more design needed. You know, we had design in the WIMFORM days, but largely it was a template. It was the Battleship Gray. We had a, a guideline published by Microsoft that said, this is how you do your user interfaces. Design is done. It just seems like today, I, and you mentioned this, the different form factors, plus people seem to have a different set of expectations. Suddenly, the uniformity of a of a client isn't as important. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that is really interesting is there is the, the brand, right? So, like, uh, uh, one of the things that, I, uh, you know, I heard quite a bit is that applications now, they don't necessarily conform to the uh, to the platform UX paradigm or the visual paradigm. Sometimes every uh, application has its own kind of brand. Like uh, Uber looks the same across platforms, right? Or you mm. know, Facebook has a similar look. So and that's another component that is really interesting because now you have both the the visual. It's, it's very important for the visual designer to understand the brand because when they create that visual experience they it needs to conform to the brand so now you're adding the brand of visuals look and feel and behavior on top of uh, the platforms hey richard you know what time it is oh it must be that happy time again that's right it's time to blend your front end design with your partner's back end process oh jeez <laughs> 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 50 shades of jokes here only oh, on Dot no Rocks. no uh, uh you know i tried to stay away but you know our fabio kept bringing it back up so i know it's never mind no no it's time to give away a telerik devcraft complete collection to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club and before awesome. i tell you who wins today i need to tell you that 
Telerik's Kendo UI is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites in mobile apps. And Kendo UI comes with server-side wrappers for ASP.NET MVC, so you'll be able to produce awesome HTML5 apps powered by Kendo UI without being forced to write JavaScript. (laughs) (laughs) Simply program on the server, and the Kendo UI wrappers will handle the HTML and JavaScript for you. You'll have fun, and your boss will be amazed. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 30-day trial with full support. Don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. And hey, the winner today gets a copy of Kendo UI because it's part of the DevCraft Complete. Absolutely. That's everything Telerik does in one box, a $2,000 value. Today's winner, James J. Wood. Ah, Congratulations, James. Golf clap for you, That's a sir. A little more than a golf clap, maybe. Uh, yeah, some great software some in there. Great no software, question. absolutely. And, and you got another giveaway today too. We're yeah, giving away a CD. We're giving away a Franklin Brothers Lifeboat to Nowhere CD, and uh, this is uh, something that my brother Jay and I've been working on for ten years. I guess it came out in two thousand eleven. Uh huh. And uh, it's just a lot of good music. So if you like classic rock, you know, even you know, Eagles, Steely Dan, Beatles, good harmonies chunky horns good arrangements play great playing you'll like lifeboat to nowhere and today's winner of that is timothy clanky congratulations timothy cd on its way to you and while we can't give it away ourselves another prize out there is a 2013 aston martin v8 vantage it'd be oh. fun to just draw a name and let it go but it doesn't work that way no now a few more steps involved and it means all we need you to be is an msdn subscriber because if you are an MSDN subscriber, you're getting Azure credits every month. That's right. If you have an MSDN Ultimate account, it's $150 each month. And the Windows Azure folks would like you to activate that account and set something up. It could be your private website. It could be building a dev test environment using virtual machines. It's totally up to you. It's very simple to do. You do not even need a credit card. You just plug it in. You get that credit every month. And as long as you spend it at that limit, it's never going to cost you a thing. And if you do that... Before September 30th, you, sir, are automatically entered into the MSDN sweepstakes, and you can win yourself an Aston Martin. Or ma'am. Or ma'am. Yeah. If you want to get into there, go to aka.ms slash Azure Rocks. Yes. And activate from there and let them know that we drove you there, and uh, hopefully you'll be driving an Aston Martin. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and join the fan club. Just takes a minute when we have thousands of members. Every show we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection and a Franklin Brothers CD. And every December we give away $5,000 in technology to a lucky member. And uh, we'd like to ask our guests, Fabio, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, toys, gadgets, what would you spend it on? Oh, man. I came so prepared for that question. All right. <laughs> uh, finally. Finally. And I hope to be – I'm going to set the bar here. Okay. And, uh, but here here it goes, right? So, I'm I'm looking for an HP Z620 workstation with a NVIDIA Quadro card, 2639 MSRP. Oh. You guys keeping track of that? Yep. Yep. Okay. MakerBot Replicator 2. He's got a list. MSRP. Nice. $1.99. <laughs> so at this point, we are $48, $38. Now, <laughs> wow. I, need, I need some filaments for the 3D printer. Yeah. Right? So let's say I get two cartridges 
for a total of $67.98. Wow, you're no. getting okay. close. Uh, now I'm getting to more the desperate portion of it, right? So now <laughs> I'm going to say, okay, now I'm going to get a Microsoft mouse keyboard combo for $69.99. Whoa. So if you guys are telling it up, we are at $49.75.97. And you know what? <laughs> and you know how I'll buy you a coffee and then we'll call it even. Oh, no, I'm not done yet. Oh, no. So, you know when you go to Home Depot and you have those coupons, you know, $5 on 15 and you're scrambling? Yeah. Well, I always go for batteries. So, I'm getting 40 AA batteries awesome. for $21.45. So, right now, my total is $49.97.42. Okay. I now, guess can I buy you like, a cup of coffee? Yeah. <laughs> All right. That would be, yeah. It's going to be a small coffee now. Wow, that's awesome. Exactly. So, 3D printing is your plan, huh? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. One of the things I would love to do is get uh, the, the Kinect uh, Fusion stuff. Love yeah. it. And do a scan and print on the, the replicator. And yep. then uh, maybe do some crazy stuff like create a miniature version of a, a room and, you know, yeah. do some projection and do some customization of fabrics on miniature furniture or something crazy like that. That's awesome. Yeah. And Replicator 2 is an awesome printer for the money. You can't argue with it. It's the Excellent. PLA uh, format, good printing size. These guys have been doing it a long time. The quality of that product is well known. Yeah. And then and now with, uh, with the, the printer drivers, right, the drivers built in in, in, in blue, that's really amazing. I mean, yeah, Windows 8.1 includes 3D printer drivers. Yeah, so that really got me excited. You know, when I went to build and I saw all this, this, all this three D printers. Say, yeah, now the time has come. Yes, three D printers here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It's the you know Star Trek replicators. That's where we're going. Yeah, yeah. But definitely falls into the creatives class. You know, like got to think anybody who likes design is going to love a printer like that. Just the things you'll think of and explore. Well, you know, I brought up industrial design for a reason. My oldest daughter uh, is going to do her first year at Rhode Island School of Design this year. Emmy Franklin. Congratulations, Emmy. And she's going in for industrial design. And, you know, when that happened, when she told me she got accepted, I really was thinking about 3D printing and the future of, uh, you know, replicators in the home, because obviously that's where we're going, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's where we're heading. You, you want to just walk up and say, I want something that goes like this. You know, maybe it's got some metal, some plastic, maybe it's food, you know, whatever. So in that future, designers are the software developers. They're the programmers of that hardware manufactured revolution, because the design is the, th is the input to a 3D printer, and the output, of course, is the product. And you know, just like software, we the, the software is the input. That's what that's what the computer chews on to do something. So I th I sort of think of uh, I think of designers as having quite a quite a a role in the future. Yeah, and then imagine like the same thing that once we got the personal computers and we had the internet, and then the kids were able to develop applications in in their houses. Right. So now you have this whole new generation of industrial designers. They'll be able to design new things. They're going to be not only functional, but beautiful. And they'll be able to prototype and test at home at a really affordable price. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, on the 3D printer side, I think also we're going to start seeing the equivalent of 
um, you know, your Kinkos. So you're going to print on your home printer and only get so so good a quality and, and so many options, but you're going to refine the product till you're happy with it. And then you fire it down to your 3D printing equivalent of Kinkos for a real high-res quality item, or maybe you get it made out of titanium, you know, this, all those choices. Right. Yeah, yeah, which that's is a very uh, interesting point because a lot of, I think a lot of those materials, uh, they kind of feel a little brittle. So it would be nice to be able to, you know, be able to go to Kinko's 3D, right? 3D printing and yeah. be able to print on different materials. They're more, they're stronger, you know, and all of that. Right. And printing on food, make a cake. You know, it's, there's people working on that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I've seen so, I've seen a couple of 3D icing printers that are pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, you have your the basic ingredients and building blocks of food. And then, you know, the laser does the cooking sort of at the molecular level and just assembles something. Yeah. But, you know, it's the biological processes that are difficult to replicate, like yeast. Yeah. You know, that's that's a little bit difficult. <laughs> make the whole cake. To make a real cake, you know. But, you know, it also speaks to this creative design is becoming more and more a common skill, too. The, uh, Fabio, how do you th- feel about just developer as also designer? You know, that's a, that's a really tough question because, you know, I think it's the... Okay, let me let me let me say this right. So way back, uh, I think I was at, at a mixed conference, and one of the things I said something that was very controversial. I was saying, you know, uh, developers, you got to realize that you know you're probably not going to be great designers. Mm. And oh my god, what a reaction! <laughs> right, I got yeah. this crazy <laughs> reaction to, and then I had people saying, oh, you know, Microsoft guys are looking for you. They want to, they want to talk to you. Like, oh man, I got into a lot of trouble, right? Right. But I think uh, what happens is, uh, you know, I've seen, I've seen. Visual designers, they're also developers, but they're very rare. They're so rare that I call them the unicorn. Okay. Right. Now, I don't deny the existence of unicorns. They do exist. Okay. In fact, I met them and I know that people have worked with them, but it's really difficult to field. I mean, I think it's really difficult. And, and, and why is that? I think part of it is, I think it's, it takes a lot of effort and time to be good on both sides. And I think that's the reason why there's so few unicorns out there. Hmm. Yeah, it's just not a common thing to be good at both things at once. But I'm also wondering how much of the design stuff is becoming templates again, like getting back to the WimForms model of there is a right way. Yeah. And I think there are different levels of design, right? So are we talking about simple design or more, you know, more uh, elaborate or more sophisticated design? You know, it, and it's really hard to define that. It, you know, it's going back to, you know, the whole definition of obscenity, right? Yeah. What does what good design actually look like? Yes. Exactly. Um, should we talk about specific technologies? I mean, uh, clearly in the Microsoft world, it's it's all XAML all the time now, Mo- whether it's the Win8 development or WPF, like that seems to be what's really broken the door open for real design in the Microsoft space. Yeah, you know, actually, that's a very good question because, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I think it's really has been tricky every time I was working with designers is the the animation component. Right. And the, the, dif- the difficulty behind animation is that it needs to perform in real time. 
So call it 30 frames per second or 60 frames per second. Right. Sometimes it's really hard to get that performance out of the system, you know. And uh, so we, so when it comes to one of the things that is really interesting that I, I learned is we hear that, uh, you know, WPF is hardware accelerated. So you would think that you will get really great animations and really great performance, but sometimes, even if you put the best graphics card out there, you don't get the, the performance for some reason. Mm. And I think it, the part of it is that uh, I, I didn't understand what hardware acceleration really meant. Right? Mm. And, and when it came down to it, is the we, we actually have even like a little uh, article that we wrote uh, where we talk about, you know, what is hardware acceleration uh, for markup developers, for HML developers. And if you understand the, 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 the root of hardware acceleration, then it makes it a lot easier to understand what's going on. So at the end of the day, if you're just doing uh, DirectX uh, uh, and uh, DirectX development, everything is a 3D object. So even a, um, a, a image, a rectangle, is basically two triangles. Uh, you know, next to each other. Right. Uh, and then the other thing that is really crazy is that just because of the fine triangles, and it doesn't mean you're going to get an image. The 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 thing that draws the 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 image itself, the pixels, are pixel shaders. Right. So any if you open the most basic uh, DirectX book, you're gonna find that. The thing that is going to put the green dot on the screen is a pixel shader. Mm -hmm. So then even if you're looking at uh, images, so how do they do like uh, lighting on the image? How do they make an image, uh, you know, because there's a point light or ambient light, how do they do that? Well, the pixel shader looks at the at a data structure that tells the position of the lights and it will make that pixel brighter or or not. So, so then you're thinking, okay, everything we talk here has nothing to do with grids, stack panels, right. even line art, right? So, I think one of the things that we need to understand is why sometimes we're trying to create those uh, uh, very uh, highly animated uh, experiences and we don't get the frame rate. It's because at the end of the day, there's a lot of stuff that happens in XAML that is related to, to layout calculation. Right? How how do how does the system uh, will bind all of those uh, pixels together and then they send it to the graphics card? You know, so I think uh, sometimes when you're having a hard time uh, getting performance, you need to look at it. Is that because I have a, a, a layout issue going on here, assembling that that uh, the visual that eventually makes it to the graphics card? Or is it a purely graphics card situation? What was the graphics card you had uh, specced out in your $5,000 machine there, or your $2,800 machine? <laughs> yeah, it was the uh, Quadro, NVIDIA Quadro card. Yeah. You know? And it's the yeah. NVIDIA Quadro chip, right? There's a lot of cards that use it, right? Exactly. Yeah. I think NVIDIA doesn't even make cards themselves, right? Sure. They, they provide the chipset. But uh, yeah, so it's interesting because we we created some apps that are purely DirectX apps, uh, 
and you can definitely tell that the graphics card makes a big difference in, in the yeah. performance. But there are certain situations where it really doesn't make a big difference because there's a lot of uh, CPU-bound activity taking place. You know? Another little tip that I think it, it has been very successful uh, for me when it comes to uh, programming animations is the combination of uh, visual state management, XAML, and MVVM. What I really like about visual state management is that allows you to do uh, the you know program animation. So basically, uh, I think I think a classical example is of visual state management is the checkbox, because the checkbox has the the I'm checked or not checked, I'm enabled or not enabled, right, and all of that stuff. Right. So you have those different visual states, and uh, and the way you can you think in terms of visual state management. You think where you want the visual element to be. What is its final destination? So maybe if we use a very simple example and we have like an info panel. That info panel can be on top, bottom, left, or right of the screen. So you define the visual states like that. Top, bottom, left, and right. You put the X and Y coordinate and, and you say go there in half a second or 300 milliseconds, right? With a certain easing. So that's what you do. And the visual state management engine takes care of, it doesn't matter where you are, you're going to be there. So it doesn't matter if you're on top, bottom, left or right. If you want to go to top, I'll take you there. So does it take into account how, how much time it's taking to render the things that it has rendered? in order to figure out how many frames it's going to take to get from A to B with the easing that you have specified? In XAML, typically you define the time, right? So you say you're going there in a second or, you know, something like that, or 500 milliseconds. But I think what is really interesting about it is that you don't have to, you as a developer, you don't have to think in terms of where I am right now and where do I need to go. You just tell the Visual State Manager where you want to be. Right. I want to be on top and it takes care of everything. If and if I'm not mistaken, if you're halfway from one stage to the other and then the user says go there, it will take care for for you of we'll going just, from in between going to that destination. It'll just go right? immediately. Yeah, or just yeah. Go, yeah, exactly. So so why is that interesting? Because oftentimes what I have done is I use MVVM, so I have a view model that where there's a lot of logic saying, I want to go to this state or that state. Right? So there's a lot of that, that thing saying, uh, I want to go to top. So I may have just a, a enumeration, and then I say, your state is on top, your state is on the bottom, and the enumeration will have, you know, top, bottom, left, and right. And so you have that, that logic, the, the logic highly encapsulated in the view model, and then somehow you figure out a way to translate that state in view model into a visual state mm -hmm. example. And the whole thing works really nicely. You can do unit testing on the view model. And at the same time, you can achieve this really interesting visual effect in animation. And the code is really stable. Right? So this is one example where you have a software engineer in, in the front end designing things that way 
and then you can have a front-end developer thinking in terms of how we do the animations. What is the easing? What is the timing on that? So you right. sort of went back and forth between concepts that you have to deal with in DirectX and then and then what you can deal with in XAML. And obviously, when every th- when you have a lot of objects in XAML, that can really slow down. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, so are you really talking to XAML developers, or are you hoping that XAML uh, developers will get some DirectX? And uh, you know, what can they learn from that? Yeah, you know, I think it's sometimes. Uh, I think basically the the reason it went, uh, you know, uh, this way is sometimes I think XAML developers are puzzled. Why do I? If this thing is hardware accelerated, how come it's not performing? Hmm. Right? And and then you think, then I think understanding the 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 true reality of or the the truth about DirectX or the what is, what is hardware acceleration? Hardware acceleration at the end of the day, yeah. So yeah, it's basically a hardware acceleration. You have multiple cores going through that triangle and calling a pixel shader to paint a pixel on the screen. I mean, it's an oversimplification for sure, but that's what it is. So how can you move that image so quickly on the screen when you're using DirectX? It's because you have potentially hundreds of cores that are moving uh, uh, in parallel pixels on the screen. Right. Right. Because of the graphics yeah. card. Now, is there is there such a thing as a hardware accelerated XAML? Does Windows 8 give us that? I think the, what happens is XAML has been, you know, hardware accelerated for many platforms. WPF for sure. Uh, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Silverlight has been hardware accelerated. But what happens is there is there are several steps that you have to go through before the bitmap makes into the GPU, right? Really? So it's not yeah. just, you don't just get it out of the box. You actually have to configure it. Well, I don't think you have to configure it. I think it, the, the framework takes care of that. Uh-huh. But in the framework is going through all the, you know, the, the containers and running the layouts, rendering the pixels, and eventually somehow, which I don't understand, I'm not going to try to say that I understand, eventually makes into the, into the graphics card. Right. So when you're doing things like uh, panning, uh, zooming, and, and things like that, oftentimes there is that's where the hardware acceleration is coming in. Right? It, it, it really it really it scrolls really fast, right? Like for example, when we go to the start screen uh, in Windows 8, I can tell it it, it is definitely hardware accelerated. Yeah. Right? So those bitmaps are sitting on the GPU, and the GPU is just saying, "Okay, everybody, hundreds of cores. Let's just move the pixels, and it moves really, really smooth." Yeah. Right. right. So that's what's happening. But then, if you have a, a very complex set of grids and stack panels and whatever, and and uh, then it will potentially slow down. If, the, if if there's a lot of layout changes, then you get into a lot of the, a lot of issues. I tell you what I tried to do in XAML, and it was just too slow. Is draw a real time sine wave for for audio while recording. Right, yeah. because probably there was a lot of the bitmaps 
or well, changing yeah. quite a bit, right? Well, just it's a lot of lines. Like if, you know, first of all, you, there's no way you can draw 44,000 lines per second, which is how many samples you get, you know, one segment to another. So you have to thin it out. But even at something that looked pretty archaic, on a really nice system, by the way, it turned out to be just too slow. Yeah. And it I just, we'll- I just wonder, you know, what, uh, well, you know, Adobe Audition, for example, is doing. Are they using C++? They're not using DirectX, but they're obviously doing some direct graphic stuff that is faster than putting lines, uh, you know, adding line objects to a canvas. Right. So I think what's happening is when you have line art, like lines and rectangles, we, we, we're thinking that those are vector graphics. And yeah. we would think, oh, my God, this ought to be super performant. But mm-hmm. I think what happens is, uh, in reality, those things are being rendered. Right. They are the bitmaps are being created. Right. They scale very nicely. You every don't time, get it. Every time you add a new line, the whole wave has to be recreated. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I think that is potentially the issue going on there. Now, what technique Adobe uses, I I have no idea. Right. I mean, I really don't know. No, I but my intuition is that. Even though we're thinking, oh, we have line art. It's just line art. It should be super fast. Well, a lot of that is happening on the CPU, you know. So that's why you can put the best graphics card. You, if you CPU, if you are CPU bound, you're not gonna get the performance. Well, and that's why everything's got a GPU these days. Even pretty much archaic GPUs can take off a lot of load. I think the challenge is speaking to the GPU efficiently and. And I don't know, I think in Windows 8, we're starting to see XAML getting closer to the GPU. Earlier incarnations of, of WPF, uh, you know, different XAML incarnations just didn't seem like they were all that close to the GPU. Yeah, and I think now the, the, the latest, it, they're, they're taking better advantage. They're, they're probably having more stuff going on the GPU. You know, I think that's why you're seeing some of that performance in, improvement. You know, and the other thing that is really interesting, something that I, I learned is the GPU at, at the end of the day is really, really is a multi, super massive multi-core system. Yeah. That, that you can do computations, right? So we mm-hmm. even created uh, some proof of concepts where we do particle generation on the GPU, right? So we have a connect that gives us the, the point cloud in 3D. And then we create, uh, triangles on the GPU, right? So, so it's not something that we get the point clouds on the CPU and then create the, the triangles and the vertices and all of that. It's all happening on the GPU because it, that's why you have things like, you know, uh, AMP, right? C++ AMP that they, sh- they push stuff down to GPU. Uh, CUDA is another thing that yeah. people do. So, because at the end of the day, those are kind of floating point uh, multiprocessor machines that you have on the on the GPU. Yeah, we just got to make it easy for people to utilize them. And, it, you know, I also think back to back when the browser wars were really ripping between uh, IE and, and Chrome is when the GPU got introduced as part of the browsing experience. They were starting to utilize that for, for web page rendering, and it just stepped the the performance up a whole other level. Exactly. And one of the things that I'm really excited that hopefully we get more browser support is WebGL. 
Because once we get to WebGL, I think mm-hmm. the opportunities and the, and the possibilities in terms of a graphics performance, uh, including user experience, is gonna is gonna just skyrocket. It's just that you know we still need to deal with you know IE seven, IE eight. We can say that IE six is dead, right? I mean, it, it's dead. I hope so. Yeah. So. Well, Fabio, what's next for you? I know you were at Build. That's where we met. Uh, you got another show coming up? Uh, you know, I don't have anything specifically planned as far as, you know, new shows, but definitely uh, trying to play with the latest and greatest. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just got uh, a Leap Motion uh, device a oh, couple yeah. days ago. Love yeah. those things. Yeah, I have one. Really? Oh, nice. yeah. Really cool. I call them the Connect for the Fingers. That's it. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You know. That's and, what it is. Uh, yeah, trying to still trying to figure out how we use uh, how we use it because I had to say my arms were kind of sore after after a little while, and uh, and and the other thing is the the touch screen is is so close. I mean, why why don't I just touch the screen, right? So I'm still trying to figure out what is that application. Uh, one thing that that we've been thinking is maybe we do a combination connect a connect for the body. And the uh, the leap for the hands, you know, or something like that. But yeah, yeah still still exploring possibilities. Yeah, yeah, great. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully I get the three D printer right. And Absolutely, then, uh, we'll get some yeah some fun time with so it. So if you ever figure out a way to uh, make uh, tea Earl Grey hot, you call me and let me know. Actually, call Richard because <laughs> that's his favorite tea. There you go. All right, Fabio. Thanks very much for spending this hour with us. Yeah, thank you. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.